So good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? So tonight, I'm going to give a Dharma talk about mindfulness. Have we all been practicing mindfulness today? So we're at the tail end of our first full day of practice. So I'm going to talk about just some thoughts on the essential practice that we're engaged in. Now, why, why do we want to do mindfulness? What's the rationale for us wanting to engage in this practice? This is what Dilgo Ketse Rinpoche says about the mind. What we normally call the mind is the deluded mind, a turbulent vortex of thoughts whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. This mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning, and unless they are immediately overpowered with the proper antidote, they quickly take root and proliferate, reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred or attachment in the mind and adding more and more karmic imprints. So my uh, dear friend Musham Akita came over from EBMC today to have lunch, and last week she and I were talking just over email, and I was giving a, a, a talk on mindfulness at the last retreat, the um, People of Color Retreat at IMS, and she said, oh, I'm giving a talk on mindfulness too at EBMC. And she said the title of my talk is, I know that mindfulness practice this helps me, but I don't do it. <laughs> well, she was, she was talking about that for the students who she was going to come, you know, who were going to come. So, um, you know, what is it about mindfulness or why are we trying to, um, to practice it? And Musham said, you know, something that all Dharma teachers and practitioners say is that one of the reasons that we don't practice it is because we get caught up in our habitual stories about who we are and who they are and what that is and what this is. And um, all of those thoughts, all of that clinging, uh, that's essentially the second noble truth, just clinging to ideas about who we are and what everything else is, essentially is the cause of all, all of our suffering. So um, there's some, you know, mindfulness. So mindfulness is really the antidote to that. Mindfulness is the medicine. And, um, you know, what is it the medicine for? You know, the Buddha taught that uh, we have uh, something called distortions of perceptions, vipalasas, three types of distortions. We have distortions of perception, like when we would see a uh, stick and mistake it for a snake. And then those distortions of perceptions lead to distortions of thought. All of a sudden it'll whip us up to think about all of the different things that we know about snakes. And that 
that distortion gets really hardened in us and it becomes a distortion of view. And that view further, uh, further influences how we perceive things. So that's, you know, one of the, um, one of the um, illnesses that mindfulness is the medicine for. Another way to think about these distortions of perceptions are that we have all of these unexamined assumptions about how life is that cause us a lot of suffering. And they might be at the level of view. We might not even voice them as thoughts in our mind but we assume that reality is based on that. And the first um, unexamined assumption, unvoiced, is when an an experience arises, we probably have the view, this is the way it's going to be forever. Another unexamined assumption and unvoiced thought is in order for this experience to be okay, it has to be pleasant. And then a third vipalasa is, this, I am making this experience happen, or this experience is happening to me. The first... Um, assumption that it'll be this way forever is, of course, the distortion of not understanding impermanence or denying impermanence. The second distortion is, you know, that this has to be pleasant, is denying just that there is a lot of unpleasantness in the world and that, you know, just being born into a human body that's going to be part of our shared humanity that we have to open to those things that are unpleasant. And then finally, I am making this happen, or this is happening to me, is my favorite one. And that is that, you know, we all know that the causes and conditions for anything to happen in any moment, even for all of us to get here, you know, all of us included, all of us, it took, you know, multiple causes and conditions It had to do with economics and family responsibilities and jobs and serendipity of knowing the retreat was here. I mean, just a lot. I mean, social conditions and individual family conditions and individual conditions. So for us to think that, you know, we made this happen just with ourselves, it's like us having a stick figure theory about how life works. You know, life works because of just one small contributing factor. And I think we know on a deeper level that that's just not the way things work. And then that this is happening to me. You know, this is denying the truth of interconnectedness or of anatta, that we just aren't who we think we are. There's nothing that we could experience that is going to be unique to us. Maybe the, you know, the names and places are unique, but the emotions that are arise, the reactions that are arise, they existed long before any of us were ever born. And they will exist long after any of us are gone. They are shared human experience. They're part of being a human. So 
It's not personal. None of it is personal. How else do we evade our, um, our experience? We engage in outright denial. We rationalize. We explain situations away. We try to push our feelings into the background. That's what mindfulness is really excellent at. And we, we engage in something called uh, spiritual bypass. Actually, Broderick and I and Nicole, one of the staff, were having a discussion about this over dinner, spiritual bypass. Do you guys know what spiritual bypass is? It's interesting. I'll read you a, I will read you a definition. This is by Ingrid uh, Mathai. Spiritual bypass is a defense mechanism. Although the defense looks a lot prettier than other defenses, it serves the same purpose. Spiritual bypass shields us from the truth. It disconnects us from our feelings and helps us avoid the big picture. It is more about checking out than checking in. And the difference is so subtle that we usually don't even know we are doing it. The shorthand for spiritual bypass is grasping rather than gratitude. So this is a way to check if you're opening up or doing a bypass. Grasping rather than gratitude, arriving rather than being, avoiding rather than accepting. It is spiritual practice in the service of repression, usually because we cannot tolerate what we are feeling or think that we should, we should not be experiencing what we are feeling. So that spiritual bypass, when we use our spiritual practice to, you know, somehow rise above the material and real conditions of our life. Other ways that we engage in, um, you know, other ways that we cause dukkha in our lives is rather than opening to reality, we preoccupy ourselves with external fixes, and we know what those are. Drugs, alcohol, sex, spending. You know, all of us could probably name our poison. We engage in blame. We project our suffering onto others rather than to take responsibility for our emotional response to things. My uh, favorite indulgence was for a very long time self-pity. It was so pervasive in my mind, I didn't even realize it was there. It was like I was a fish swimming in water and I just could not even see the water. It was on a three-month retreat that, you know, I just finally was able to put a frame around what that was. And since then, I've, you know, had a... It's been really excellent for me to decondition that in my mind. As soon as self-pity pops up, I said, up, there you are again, and I'm able to decondition it. And I realized that I actually got it from my dear mother, who's, you know, 89 and stays with me quite a lot. And I learned self-pity from her. She, you know, had engaged in it all her life. And I actually pointed it out to her. I put the frame around her own self-pity. And even in her late 80s, she is deconditioning it. It's really amazing what's possible when we can see the, 
you know, uh, negative mental factors. That, you know, mindfulness is really an amazing thing. And then torturing ourselves with guilt. Just wringing our hands and, you know, for our own perpetrations. So what is the medicine for that? It is the practice that we're doing right now. You know, what all of those things are are the first noble truth. They are the truth of suffering. And the second noble truth about why we suffer and, you know, what mindfulness is, it's part of the fourth noble truth, the way to, uh, the way to, um, towards happiness. You know, this, the theme of the retreat is happiness, and, you know, the Buddha would often say, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So what is the end of suffering? It's happiness. So the Buddha, you know, they called him the happy one. So this practice, even how difficult it might be at times, you know, all of those things are temporary as well. So what is mindfulness? So first let me tell you the claim. This is what the Buddha wrote in the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the sutta that he explained how to do this practice. The Buddha said, This is the only way, yogis, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the, attain, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. That's a really big claim. So one of my colleagues, uh, Michael Yellowbird, he's a... Um, he is a social work professor at um, Cal State Humboldt, and he calls mindfulness neurodecolonization. <laughs> it is. You know, all of the historical traumas and, you know, that we suffer, all of the microaggressions, we are probably pretty constantly constantly um, exposed to, you know, they create a lot of suffering in our, in our heart and in our mind. And we, you know, have habitual responses to them that lead to even more of our suffering. And, you know, I love what, they, what neuroscience has found out about mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness. You know, neuroscience has found out that the, the brain is, uh, has something called neuroplasticity, and that means that those pathways that uh, would um, that those pathways that um, predict our response to any of those things, you know, our reactivity to microaggressions, to the historical traumas, to the colonial moments that we all suffer, um, those can actually be deconditioned in our mind through mindfulness. It's almost like those neuropathways of reactivity, they get little putty put in them by the practice of, of mindfulness. And actually the Buddha, and you know, I was reading an article by a, um, you know, a neuroscientist who was saying, now we have found out about neuroplasticity because of these advanced, these advanced uh, medical technology that we have, you know, just the most advanced technology. 
the Buddha wrote about the malleability of the brain 2,600 years ago. He talked specifically about the brain's malleability. How did he do that? So what is mindfulness? What is it? So um, I'm going to be drawing on a couple different scholars about what they've been writing recently on mindfulness. There's two that are very big in our tradition. Of course, my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, just came out with an incredible book on mindfulness that I would recommend a thousand percent. It's called Mindfulness. (laughs) And um, another uh, book, another scholar that we all really adore, his name is Bhikkhu Analyo. He's actually a, um, a uh, he's actually from Germany, I think, but he studied in Sri Lanka, and he has a PhD in Buddhism from Sri Lanka, and he wrote a wonderful book on mindfulness on the Satipatthana Sutta, really explaining it. And what um, An- Anayo says, and you know, this is not only what he says, this is what all um, senior meditation teachers say, is that mindfulness is a capacity of our awareness. It's a capacity of our awareness that we can all cultivate. It's like, you know, we all have abs. We could all have, you know, rippled abs (laughs) if we did the exercises for that. But how many of us have those? (laughs) So mindfulness is the same way, is that we could have Uh, You know, the strength of our mindfulness depends on how much we train the mind. So it's a capacity of awareness. And um, sati has a few characteristics. It is, uh, it actually has a perception in it. It perceives things. And what's really interesting about sati or mindfulness is that, you know, I talked a moment ago about the misperceptions that we have, right? the distortions of uh, perception, thought, and view. And what mindfulness does is it gets in there right before, between perception and the object. It gets right in there and actually uh, allows us, depending on the strength of our mindfulness, it deconditions the habitual distortion of perception is what it does. It just allows us to see clearly what the object is rather than us making assumptions about it based on our history, right? It clears up perceptual distortions. One of the central tasks of mindfulness is that, I know this is an interesting language, de-optimization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations, So, you know, mindfulness, when we, you know, for example, we see someone we've had some conflict with, and, you know, the truth is we have no idea what's in that person's mind or heart in the moment. But, you know, we assume that we do know because of our, uh, you know, distorted perception, distorted thoughts, and distorted view. And rather than to come into the situation with an open mind and heart, that actually is the wisest way to approach the situation. You know, we, we come in with a lot of attitude. 
And mindfulness would allow us to realize and know the reality of impermanence and know the reality of anatta and know the reality of dukkha and to maybe have, have a don't-know mind in that situation. So sati, mindfulness, leads to a progressive restructuring of how we perceive things. A progressive restructuring towards seeing clearly. And that's another, you know, that's another big source of our suffering, right? If we knew uh, not conceptually and not how to practice, but if we had verified knowledge of the three characteristics of reality, we wouldn't count on them. You know, we, we would know better than to rest our happiness on that. You know, if we expected this box of Kleenex to stay in the air for our happiness to be complete, we're really out of luck. This, um, you know, brings to mind another, I mean, it gives us another point of advice about how we live with all of the injustices of, of the world, how we live with microaggressions and with racism and with economic injustice and income inequality. Um, you know, mindfulness and the Dharma tells us that we don't have to wait to, for all of those things to be fixed for us to be happy and for us to be peaceful. That's a really huge uh, point of wisdom for us to take in. In fact, if we had to base our happiness and our peace and our sense of contentment on all of those external things happening, if our happiness was really contingent on the external world, we would really be out of luck. And the Dharma tells us that you know, we don't have to wait for those internal things to, external realities to change. The Dharma tells us that rather than trying to carpet the world, we should put on slippers. And that's what mindfulness is. It's part of protecting ourselves and seeing reality. So in addition to mindfulness, sati in Pali, there's another really important uh, mind mental factor that uh, we look for when we're doing this practice. And that mental factor is called clear comprehension or sampajanya. It's really a wonderful quality of mind. And I'm sure that many of you have felt it even you know, as we begin our practice. So what does sampajanya do? Sampajanya, you know that Sampajanya is in your mind when you can see very clearly the motivation of why you're doing something, and it's not sticky. I'm sure you've had this experience on the cushion that you can have a thought come up and you'll see it arise, and you'll just see the thought. You won't get on the thought train, you'll just see it, and then you'll just watch it pass away. And some thoughts will feel really sticky, and you'll think, wow, that really defines me. And other thoughts, you know, it could even be a similar thought at another time in the day, will arise, 
you'll see it and then you'll pass, it'll pass away and there won't be that stickiness to it. You'll just say, wow, that was pretty interesting. I'm sure you've, you know, had both of those experiences, you know, sitting on the cushion and maybe in the walking meditation. That refers to the level of how much we're identifying with what we're seeing with our mindfulness. So the um, other um, characteristics of clear comprehension or sampajanya is that we know the motivation of uh, why we're doing it in action. And what we mean by that is we understand whether the motivation is wholesome or unwholesome. Any, you know, all of the unwholesome motivations, it's really simple, lead to suffering, and the wholesome motivations absolutely lead to happiness, to um, satisfaction. Another characteristic of Sampajanya is that it knows the suitability of the activity that you're doing in the moment. So Sampajanya knows whether it's appropriate to pull out your cell phone or not. That's Sampajanya. Or it knows that when you have really good... um, Sampajanya is the mental factor or the quality in your heart that will tell you that, wow, you know, I've got great momentum in my mindfulness. I've been practicing very relaxed but diligently through the day. And even though I want to take a nature walk, I'm going to keep up this practice and do walking meditation. It knows the domain, it knows the appropriate domain for your practice. And another characteristic of um, Sampajanya is that, you know, non-delusion. You know, it will, you know, you'll have the thought in your mind, I don't want to do walking meditation, I want to go have a cup of tea. And Sampajanya will see that, you know, see that, uh, that um, motivation maybe for a little comfort, right, for a little pleasure, we want a little hit of pleasure, and we know a cup of tea with maybe a little sugar will give us a little hit of pleasure. It'll see that, but it, it'll be fine. You know, you can go and get your cup of tea, have a mindful cup of tea. But Sampajanya will, you know, that clear comprehension will see the arising of that pleasure in your mind and then see it pass away. And it will extract the wisdom out of that experience that you know, that was a very, uh, that was not a very satisfying way to actually get pleasure in my mind. You know, it was perfectly fine, there's nothing wrong with it, but it really isn't going to lead to any lasting satisfaction. So that's the characteristic of Sampajanya. So again, you know, when we're doing our practice, we're looking, you know, we're assessing in our mind Uh, the level of our mindfulness and our clear comprehension. Not for any type of self-recrimination at all, just because it's part of our investigation of our mindfulness, the investigation mental factor. So those are the... um, Oh, another way that um, Analyo talks about, Analyo talks about mindfulness, I love this. He talks about mindfulness as sitting in the middle between the two extremes of how we deal with experience. You know, on some, you know, I gave examples of how we, we deny experience and we repress experience and how we're intolerant to experience. The other side of that is that we obsess, 
with our experience. We totally indulge in experience and we privilege our experience. We get on that train or we deny that the train is even on the track. But mindfulness allows us to actually take a third approach to that. Mindfulness holds our objects, whatever is arising, in the middle of those two extremes. It holds it in clear comprehension. It holds it with some stability, with some non-judgmental awareness. And, you know, what it does is it allows us to live our values. If it's a wholesome quality that we want to uh, water the seeds of, you know, a wholesome force in our mind, it allows us to act on that and to, um, you know, strengthen that in our mind. If it's an unwholesome quality that we want to pick the weeds of that in our mind, if, you know, that thought or that uh, impulse is based in greed, hatred, and delusion, mindfulness allows us to hold it in awareness, not act on it, which actually deconditions that in the mind. It deconditions those habitual habit patterns that get us in trouble and that cause our suffering. That's what my, you know, that's what the promise of mindfulness is. So that's the qual- those are the qualities of Satisampajanya, uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension. And so how did, how did the Buddha teach it? He taught that there are four foundations of mindfulness, that with this quality of awareness, there are four things that we can use our mindfulness to, ob- to observe in our life's experience. And, you know, why did he choose these things? You know, it'll be interesting for us to, you know, pose that question. Why did he uh, choose these four things for us to hold in our mindfulness? But before I say that, I want to say one other thing about um, how we even hear the words that I'm saying right now. You know, uh, Bonte, I taught with Bonte in October at IMS, and he gave this beautiful teaching about the three ways of knowing something. There's three ways for us to know something. We know something conceptually, so we know these words and these thoughts and these definitions in our mind. We know how to practice with something. So, you know, we might know how to try to strengthen the mindfulness in our mind. And then we know something through direct experience. We realize it. And that actually has no, uh, no concepts associated with it. It's just, you know, an insight that comes to our mind. And um, so I'm hoping that um, these words that I'm giving you are going to land uh, in your intuitive awareness. My uh, teacher in Seattle, or you know, some of us who live in Seattle have this wonderful teacher, Rodney Smith. And one way he describes this is he says that humans have two knowledge systems. And you know, our indigenous <coughs> cultures knew that really, really well, that we have two no- knowledge systems. We have the rational, linear, conceptual, right-brain knowledge system that you know, does all of our academic work and um, tries to cure people and tries to make money, you know, this rational linear system. But we also all have an intuitive awareness system, an intuitive knowledge system. And that's the knowledge system that we are honing and strengthening through mindfulness and through this practice. 
we are looking really directly with bare attention. That's another characteristic of mindfulness. It's bare attention. It's not conceptual looking at all. It's looking even deeper than what concepts we might have about something. Just with our bare attention to what's happening in the moment. To extract the wisdom out of it. Not conceptually. By clear seeing what's happening in the moment. So, you know, I think that we can... What I try to do on retreat, or actually a lot of the time, I will pose a question to my intuitive awareness or just even pass along you know, uh, things that I want to know more deeply. I'll pose the question to my intuitive awareness and see how it percolates in there. And I'm hoping that you'll do the same with this Dharma talk and really all the teachings for this week. You know, you don't want to, you want to engage maybe conceptually with a little bit of reflection, but you really want to hone this and let it land in your intuitive awareness. So the Buddha taught that um, there are four uh, specific categories of experience that we can look directly at with our bare attention with mindfulness. And uh, Spring talked really beautifully this morning about the first one of those, and that is mindfulness of the body, which includes mindfulness of the breath. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. The second is uh, the Buddha taught us that we should use this bare attention to look at feeling tone. And this one is so important, to look at whether... All we need to notice about any moment of experience, and there is always the, there is feeling tone in every moment of our experience. There is some feeling tone in it. And if we wanted to be mindful of feeling tone, you know, increase our mindfulness, we could have that be our anchor. In fact, I think uh, Goenkaji teaches that as an important anchor. Um, uh, Uh, mindfulness of feeling tone. And what that is, is just to know whether any experience you're having in the moment is pleasant, whether it has pleasant feeling tone, whether it's unpleasant, has unpleasant feeling tone, or whether it has neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And this is really important because feeling tone runs our life. It runs our life. I mean, it determines what we are attached to and what we are averse to. Most of us run away from unpleasant and we're always chasing after pleasant, even if it's only just momentary. You know, pleasant feeling tone could be, you know, momentary in a second and add a lot of karma that we'll we'll pay for forever. I'm sure many of us have had that experience. And it's interesting, watch, watch your feeling tone when you start uh, spacing out in your mindfulness. What, do you, what feeling tone do you think is present when your mind starts to wander? It's neutral feeling tone. We get so spaced out with neutral feeling tone, it's very hard to stay pleasant that we start making up stories in our mind just to entertain ourselves. I mean, think about, I mean, this is really, you know, um, evident in relationships. You're so in love with your partner for a while. And then things start to get neutral, right? Because there's so much familiarity there. You will make up problems just to make it more interesting. 
<laughs> I mean, we will make it, we would rather have, I think, negative feeling tone than neutral feeling tone. But it's a really excellent one to watch while we're on the cushion because if we can stay with neutral feeling tone, um, you know, that would absolutely allow us to live our values and rather, rather than live our habitual reactions to those three things. You know, that's another important um, focus of our mindfulness. The third, um, the third um, foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of mental states. That includes emotions and thoughts. And then the fourth is um, observations of mental objects. And tonight I just want to uh, talk briefly about two mental objects in the fourth foundation. I'll, say that, I'll talk about that in a minute. Getting back to the first foundation of mindfulness, what um, Spring led the instructions on this morning, you know, we talked about the body breathing. Mindfulness of the body also includes our postures, knowing whether we're sitting standing, lying down, or walking. Um, it's mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of our activities. One really beautiful, um, actually, you'll find that once your mindfulness gets stronger and deeper, your concentration gets deeper, we start to experience things like the four elements. We start experience things as just hardness and fluidity and um, air and temperature. Those are the things that we notice when our mindful, mindfulness gets <coughs> a little bit stronger. And we see that we are absolutely nothing but the four elements and consciousness. So we are just parts of nature like anything else. I mean, that's one of the insights of deep mindfulness. So what is one thing in the beginning of retreat that we deal with when we're looking at mindfulness of the body? We are experiencing, we can experience some physical pain. <coughs> Has anybody experienced pa any pain today? <laughs> it's a pretty uh, universal human experience <coughs> to feel pain. So what's, uh, what is the wisest way to, way to deal with pain? Particularly, in, particularly at the be beginning of a, a retreat, what we want to do is, if we can, we want to move from our primary anchor object of uh, mindfulness, if we want to really look a little bit more closely at the pain, to look at it, its constituent parts, because pain is not one thing. Pain is a concept, Right? What really is happening is stabbing or tingling or, sh or stabbing or shooting or something like that. And those are just concepts, but we can look more directly at the pain. If it seems like the pain, if, if, we, if, we, if it seems like the sensation is too strong, <coughs> what we can do is actually watch our intention to actually move to reduce the pain. You know, watch that intention arise to move and then just mindfully move in order to reduce the pain. That's absolutely fine. So I drank water to reduce the pain in my throat. <laughs> 
So, and then the second, um, so that's one way to deal with what is going to happen at the beginning of meditation retreats around the first foundation and physical pain. And then I talked a little bit about the second foundation about pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. One other thing uh, to bring our mindfulness to uh, Vedana is to know the difference between worldly pleasure and unworldly pleasure. Isn't that interesting? What is unworldly pleasure? There's actually quite a bit of pleasure associated with, um, with very positive mind states. Like um, generosity has a really positive feel to it. And um, even you know, states of concentration have very positive Vedana to it, have very positive feeling tone to it. And the Buddha would often say, he would be you know, walking around with all of his uh, disciples as yogis, and they would be doing something that he thought was unskillful, like maybe engaging in um, you know, gossip or some um, unwholesome speech. And he'd say, why don't you just go rest in jhana? You know, why don't you just go rest in the bliss of con- concentrated meditation? So, you know, it's not that we want to eschew any pleasure. In fact, we want to cultivate unworldly pleasure. And I I know many of you who are experienced meditators have felt that. It is just incredible. I know my friend Chris actually was telling me about his month here in March. He spent the month in March. And he came back to work just talking about the bliss of, you know, intensive practice. And it really, I think that kind of bliss heals our mind and it heals our heart. That we know that we can experience that not dependent on external circumstances. It's really very healing for us. So that's the second um, foundation of mindfulness. It's a mindfulness of, um, of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And to know whether something is pleasant because of worldly or unworldly causes. The third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. And um, this was a really important teaching of the Buddha. He said that, um, he actually gave a teaching around this. He taught, if a person is struck by an arrow, is that painful? And his disciples said yes. And then he said, then he asked, if a person is struck by a second arrow, is that even more painful? And the Buddha gave this teaching around how, what our reactions to emotions are. You know, oftentimes we'll have an emotion and we will have, in addition to having the emotion, whether it be a pleasant uh, emotion or even a wholesome emotion or an unwholesome emotion. In addition to having that emotion, we'll have a lot of judgment about that emotion. Emotion, um, emotion. We'll condemn ourselves. We'll judge ourselves. We'll, you know, it'll prop up our ego, and we'll think we're great yogis. You know, we'll hate the emotion. We'll deny it. Um, and, the, you know, all of those reactions to what's happening in the moment are really the second arrow. 
You know, anything that arises in the moment in our emotions or thoughts, we don't have any control in the moment of that happening. None of us is sitting on our a cushion today and saying, I want hate to arise, I want envy to arise, I want ill will to arise. What happens is, you know, those things arise by causes and conditions that have already, you know, they're already happened. And, you know, given those causes and conditions, that's what's arising in this moment. So we really have no control over that. What we do have some control over, what we want to notice in our mindfulness, is how we're holding that experience in our heart. How are we holding that? Are we judging ourselves for it? Are we opening to it? You know, are we viewing it with compassion? You know, that is what we have control over in this moment. And that is the karma that is going to determine what arises in the future. That, how we hold things now. I know my patterns. I was just walking actually down here to the hall. And what I like to see, what I like to watch for in this mind is selfing. Like I will have you know, thoughts about myself. Have you ever noticed that? How many of your thoughts are about you telling yourself who you are? <laughs> it's like, I should know that. I know who I am. But you're constantly telling yourself who you are for the good or for the bad. And when I have, um, you know, when I see thoughts arise of, you know, conceit, and, you know, I, we all have thoughts of conceit a lot, I actually, the, th- the thought of Conceit will arise in my mind, and I will see the thought, and then I will have a little jerk in my mind, like, oh, that's a bad thought. But then I'll see the jerk. (laughs) So it's the conceit, it's the judgment of the conceit, and then actually when I see the judgment of the conceit, much of the time, seeing that judgment and seeing that negative self-evaluation will be the cause for a bit of compassion to arise in my mind at that moment. So, opening up to all of the, opening up with mindfulness to the unwholesome and unskillful emotions to suffering, opening up to our own suffering is the proximal cause for compassion to arise in us. I mean, if we want compassion for anyone else, you know, we actually have to have that quality in our mind. The way for that quality to be developed and watered and strengthened is for us to open up to our own suffering and to open up to that with compassion and and self-compassion and self-friendliness and love. So that's one thing that we might turn our attention to is not, you know, what is arising in the moment, but how we're holding that, how we're holding our conceit, how we're holding our self-hate, how we're holding anything that arises from greed, hatred, and delusion, anything that arises from the four, uh, you know, divine abodes, from loving kindness, you know, how we're holding that in our mind, because that is really what the practice is. I love this story. One of our teachers, our senior teachers, um, you know, had sat with this wonderful Burmese teacher for very long, and it was always about what was in the mind, you know, 
arising and passing away. So he had went to see this new teacher, this younger teacher, and he had had an interview with him, and he was reporting you know, what he had seen in his mind. And he did this for a few days. And after a few days, the interpreter of this Sayadaw went to the teacher and said, Sayadaw wants to know why you're just talking about the object and not how, what the mind is doing with the object. So that is really our practice, is to see what the mind is doing with the objects that are arising in any moment. So those are the, um, and then, so that's the third foundation. Very quickly, the fourth foundation is um, categories of experience. And I just want to talk about two. One are the five hindrances. Uh, I'm sure none of you were sleepy or lethargic today at all, right? (laughs) And you're not going to be that way tomorrow either. You know, it's very common. It's a universal um, experience that yogis are really just... You're finally opening up to the stress in your life. And it is just exhausting to open to that. And it's absolutely fine. In fact, you know, it's a clearing out. My teacher Joseph calls it a clearing out to just open to that. And, um, you know, to just have some patience with that and to know how to to skillfully work with a sloth and torpor. Um, and we know the other hindrances are, um, you know, aversion, not wanting something in the mind, or greed, wanting something to happen in the mind that's not happening, or restlessness, you know, just being. It's so interesting that you can have restless, restlessness and sleepiness at the same time. <laughs> I've, it's, it's been in my mind, I've seen that. We call that a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> and then uh, doubt, you know, where, you know, am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? Is this really getting me anywhere? You know, my other teacher said to do it like this. I think I need to, you know, study some other tradition. Just that doubt in the mind. And I actually posted some skillful ways to work with the hindrances out in the foyer out there. I posted, I think, five different copies, so you can, you know, just maybe take a look at those if you're dealing with a lot of hindrances. And then finally, I wanted to say a few words about another thing that is going to be arising in your mind under the category of um, unworldly pleasant things that are going to happen in your mind. And like I said, I just came back from the six-day retreat at the Insight Meditation Society, you know, the other um, mothership of Western Theravanan Buddhism. And I was so, it was so productive of faith in me that there were 42 yogis there who had never set a retreat before. And, you know, they were doing the practice, how they were doing it. And by the end of the retreat, I saw so strongly these seven factors of awakening in their mind. It was so beautiful that, you know, beginners can really strengthen this. The water, the seeds of these things to, um, to uh, you know, uh, arrive in your mind. So what they are, it's mindfulness is the first one, and you're cultivating mindfulness. You know, mindfulness isn't something that you have control over. You know, um, mindfulness is a force in your mind that, that grows. 
So first it's mindfulness. If you have mindfulness, mindfulness lead, leads to investigation. So you'll start you know, looking with bare awareness, not with a lot of concepts, with bare awareness more closely at things. If you have investigation, that will actually lead to energy. It'll lead to effort. Your effort will uh, improve a little bit. And you know, you'll just be more, your continuity will increase. It'll get better. With better continuity, that actually contributes to joy in your mind. It brings happiness to your mind. Uh, joy, you know, uh, happiness to the mind or to the body, rapture or joy. Uh, having rapture and joy in the mind is the proximal cause, actually, for tranquility to arise uh, in your in your heart, in your mind. And you might have already been feeling these, like just a wave of tranquility in your heart or a wave of uh, joy in your heart. This tranquility and relaxation actually uh, leads to concentration. It increases your concentration. And then the increased concentration leads to equanimity, to a groundedness that you know you can open to anything without reactivity. You can open to really pleasant things without grasping. You can open to unpleasant things without pushing away, to equanimity in the mind. And those are the seven enlightenment factors, and they they'll, will absolutely be showing up. So in these last minutes, I want, um, you know, I was with some, um, my fellow uh, teacher trainees, and I asked them, I did a crowdsourcing about what should I tell the yogis about mindfulness. And uh, Vinny Ferraro, do you guys, some of you might know Vinny, he's a wonderful practitioner in the um, Dharma punks tradition. He said, remind people that your mindfulness is not a bulldog. You know, our mindfulness can be like something in our mind, like just, you know, a mean thing in our mind that's trying to herd our attention, right? It's like if it slips off this way, the bulldog comes around and starts barking and puts it back to the breath. And if it slips off this way, the bulldog comes and starts barking and, you know, tries to anchor it back to the breath. It's not that. Mindfulness does not have a bulldog quality to it. Yeah, and he reminded us that, you know, many of our ancestors, our parents and our grandparents, because of issues of historical trauma, they had these wars on in their mind. You know, our ancestors had these wars going on in their minds, which contributed to these wars in their family. And now, you know, that their spirits, they are they're really rooting for us right now. They are the devas that are really wanting us to get healing from that. And, you know, they don't... When we heal from that propensity that gets passed on, we're healing them too. So, you know, they're really rooting for us to, to have a little gentleness and to come to some awareness with that. So we don't want to superimpose the violence of colonization onto our mindfulness. That's not what it's about. So I guess I will leave that with you for tonight's talk. So these are just a few things I hope that landed in your intuitive awareness. You know, it's interesting that when you know the map of the mind, you don't really need to think about the map of the mind. And it's not like 
you're with your will or your ego, you're saying, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that and then I'm going to do this. What you're doing is you're just doing the practice. You're just staying present. And then when, when your mind goes through the stages, the map rises up to show you where you're at. It's not like you're trying to get anywhere. You're just trying to be present. You know, when I'm struggling, what I tell my intuitive awareness is open, 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 open. You know. So let's sit for a minute. Effort is more important than so-called success because, because effort is a real thing. What we call success is just the manifestation of our mind's ability to categorize things. This is success, that is failure. Who says? You says. That's all. Reality is what it is beyond all concepts of success and failure. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.